David. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, the sun is shining and it's spring is springing and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Man. Spring has sprung. The grass is riz. I don't know when this will air. We're recording this at the on the 1st of March, 2022. And the temperature today in Ojai is going to be 84 degrees. Well, lucky so you. We've lost our spring. Yeah. <laughs> we've gone straight Jeez. to summer. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to it here. And, uh, you know, it's the sign of the Pisces, man. So I'm like down with that. Oh, okay. Sign of the Pisces. You know, I'm a Virgo and Virgos don't believe in astrology. <laughs> Well, I'm a very fishy dude, and that is my sign. So, and yeah. with a name like oh. Ray Troll, I, I was doomed. But uh, hey, David, you mean Ray as in as in uh, Ray Finn Sting fish, Ray, and, Ray Finn Sting fish, Ray. trolling as in a fishing method. Oh, right, get I forgot that. about that. I keep thinking of because every time I look at you, I picture ogre <laughs> under the bridge. <laughs> oh, you're mean. Right. You're mean, Dave. You're gonna make me cry. So, you know I'm sensitive, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, um, yeah, are you a lumper or a splitter, which kind of brings out the paleontological news we're going to discuss very briefly. Are you a lumper or a splitter? I'm a lumper. I think I'm a lumper, man. Okay. And for our listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, define what that means, lumper and splitter. Well, in uh, scientists and just people uh, wanting to categorize things, we look at nature, we try to decide, we try to organize it all. While naming things. Naming things. Yes, you name things. And so a, naming organisms. Yeah, there's a family, and then there's a genus, and then there's a species. Yeah. Genus meaning general, and species meaning right. very specific. Right. And uh, you know what this is leading to? is This that, is leading to a paper just came out in evolutionary biology by a guy named Gregory Paul, who is not a paleontologist. He said, he well, he is. You've called me a paleontologist. He He's not an academic. He's, not, he's an you. artist yeah. like myself. Oh, I didn't know he but was But he's a much more science guy. I don't try to do science right. papers. So they found some specimens that are difficult to classify regarding T-Rex. Well, yes, there's now three Tyrannosauruses, according to uh, Greg and his, and his uh, uh, co-authors on the paper. But it's really hard to define what a species is, even today. Right. And at the genetic level, we could test, you know, genetics. Yeah, stuff. but we don't have DNA. Right. To do so that. you have to do that in bone characteristics. Yeah, I've jumped into this. So he said that there are three types of Tyrannosaurs. There's Tyrannosaurus imperator. Tyrannosaurus. So Tyrannosaurus is the genus. There are Tyrannosaurs, which is a family. So. Right. Sorry. So to... Tyrannosaurus imperator. Imperator. How do you pronounce that? Imperator. Imperator, 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 <laughs> which means Emperor Tyrant Lizard. Well, they wanted something cool. Uh, yeah. Then there is uh, the robust Tyrannosaurus Rex yeah. and the newly named, comparatively slender Tyrannosaurus Regina. Regina, which is Tyrant Lizard Queen. Queen. So there's a king and a queen. But so, yeah, what do you think? Yeah. Are you a splitter or are you well, a lumper? Huh? Do they have I a point? think I know I'm a lumper because I think splitters just want their name on the papers and they're just trying to make a name for themselves. That's why they split pretty much a similar species into different ones. But our previous guest, Jingmei O'Connor, yeah, she's the associate creator of fossil reptiles at the Field Museum yep. in Chicago. Yep. She said that a major problem with the study is that. The femur proportions is where he got all his, his analysis from. They overlap rather than showing clear separation. So she is kind of poo-pooing this. Oh, and others are different... poo-pooing. If you remember Jack Horner, a previous guest too, he's 
he's definitely a lumper. He's very cynical about all these species yeah. names. Me too. And he says it's really about the glory of it. But on, on the flip side, I know Greg Paul. I've interacted with him. Uh, he's, no, he's an artist, and he does really fabulous stuff. He's raising the question. So we're watching science yeah. in motion here. And he's saying, well, you know, yeah. and uh, somebody else who was criticizing this said, when you take on the king, T-Rex, when you take on the yeah. king, you better have a very accurate bullet, you know, to take down the king, to split the king into into a, a triage, you know, the trinity of T-Rexes. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds kind of cool. Hmm, yeah. I like that. So Tyrannosaurus Rex, Tyrannosaurus Imperator, Tyrannosaurus Regina, maybe those names will never stick. Probably not, but we will see. With but science the end of this article yeah. did say, hey, if you don't agree with me, then publish your refutation. Yes. All right, well, <laughs> dude, we have, oh my God. Yeah, you I know, know. We've, what, been, we've been going crazy in this one. I know. Let, let me tell you what I love the most, and I, I'm sure if you've listened to this podcast, I love anything that can identify a moment in time, a day in time, a week, an hour. For example, uh, Locked in Time, right? That episode had, with Gene Lomax. Yeah, where he, you know, fossils locked in a second of time that shows a, a, a minute, an hour, or whatever. Well, this is <laughs> the granddaddy the, of them all. The ultimate. Yeah. And uh, tell us who we're going to be interviewing and what did he discover? We're interviewing Robert De Palma. He has discovered what he's calling the Tannis site. It is maybe the site that shows the moments, the minutes, the, the hour or so after the, the asteroid hits the planet 66 million years ago in North Dakota, man. That's mind-blowing. Yeah, which ended the reign of the dinosaurs. It ended the Cretaceous. It ended the Cretaceous. Yeah, and yeah. there is uh, amazing detailed evidence of this train wreck frozen in time. It's more than a train wreck. It's a planetary demolition job, man. It's, it's, yeah. it's the yeah. ultra train wreck of all time, and it is the smoking gun, the the moment that the planet nearly died. Yeah. The entire planet, and it's extraordinary because people are just stunned by this, and there's been a lot of pushback, but uh, let's ask him some questions and uh, dive yeah. deep into it. into it. It's a real honor to have him here. We tracked him down. All right, well, let's call him up, and uh, this is going to be one of my favorite episodes I know. Oh, man, me too. Hey, Dave, meet Robert De Palma, paleontologist and researcher. He is in the geosciences department at Florida Atlantic University in Florida, of course, and he is a doctoral student at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom, sir. He is also the discoverer of the world-renowned Tannis site in North Dakota. It's a mind-blowing site. Robert, uh, you can tell, I'm just super excited to have you here in the show, man, so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's wonderful to be here and to, to meet both of you virtually. This is uh, fabulous and uh, and and I really I really enjoy the opportunity to to delve into paleo a little bit because it's sort of uh, you know sort of my thing I like it. Well, I know it's your thing. I'm going to ask you the question we ask all our guests, uh, and I know the answer. Are you a paleo nerd, Robert? 
I'm absolutely a paleo nerd. I don't think that anybody that likes dinosaurs or the paleo world could not be a paleo nerd. Well, I, I remember reading a little bit in, in your childhood that you uh, you had this realization of like playing with bones. And... When I was a kid, we, we, we couldn't we couldn't eat chickens or, or, or turkeys at Thanksgiving uh, because I had a fascination with the elegance of the skeletal system. I still do. I would not eat my dinner. I would just look at the bones and, and uh, examine the, the, the different wow. shapes. Wow. and how they would fit and and that fascination just built and built yeah it, it was just uh, kind of inescapable you actually ended up uh at the university of kansas for a while and you and i share a pass with larry martin who's that well larry martin larry actually martin... When, when i was in high school he was the first uh paleontologist to review my work oh. i actually went up to lawrence to meet with them because i was working in this educational film strip and out came this big guy Larry at the University of Kansas, super friendly guy, but I understand that he was kind of a part of uh, pointing you toward a certain uh, dig site in North Dakota. Larry was, was uh, a tremendous fellow. He was a, a very nurturing and grandfatherly-like paleontologist, um, and, and he was such a nice person. Uh, even even when other people in, in paleo uh, would take pot shots at him sometimes, as happens yeah, on yeah. occasion, he just took it in stride, and he was always nice to everybody. Um, but uh, one thing that, that Larry always impressed upon me from an early age, uh, we knew each other since I was, my gosh, in high school or maybe grade school. And, um, and Larry, uh, you know, he always said, you know, fossils are common. Paleontologists are rare. So if you want to do something, <laughs> you need to do your best at becoming a good paleontologist and nurture the coming generation. And I always took that to heart. Um, the second thing that he impressed upon me is get as much data as you can out of the sites. And, you know, we, we were looking into various different projects, uh, the early evolution of birds, the evolution of feathers, yeah, yeah. Uh, theropod dinosaurs, including raptors, and, and also fine time scales uh, in the fossil record, which are, are somewhat rare. Um, usually you'll walk out to an outcrop and, and you might see a, a sequence of rocks that could you know, represents uh, thousands to millions of years, and, and that'll give you an idea of, of what trend was going on at that time. But but rarely can you pick up a rock and say, okay, this is a few moments of time. And uh, and clearly, we want to get as detailed as we can with the, our knowledge of the past. So instead of getting the, uh, the skimmed version of a book, we want to read page by page, line by line of the natural record. So... When I completed my uh, my master's, which uh, involved a site that had uh, a relatively fine temporal record um, that was somewhat close to the KT boundary, the KPG right, boundary. Right. You were out in the Hell um, Creek, right? Yeah. We were out in the Hell Creek, and we were within the upper 20 meters of the Hell Creek. And, and Larry said, you know, we would always sit around thinking, you know, what would be a really, really great time period to get in essentially – high-res film in the uh, geologic record. And my gosh, that transition from the Cretaceous and the Paleogene, the, the, the crowning moment of right. when the Mesozoic ended and the age of mammals began, you really want to see that. So we started thinking, well, you know, let's get closer to the boundary and maybe we could find a site with, uh, with a, a great time scale. And, and that sort of kicked it off in the back of our mind. Wait, but didn't the site that you found or were steered towards had flaky there, yeah. fish fossils and was kind of like um, they looked at it as trash and didn't realize the significance. The interesting part about this site is uh, it wasn't what we thought it was to begin with. <laughs> so yeah. we were able to get a 
very generous uh, tip-off by a group of avocational uh, fossil hunters that were out there. You know, they run paleo tours. It's called Paleo Prospectors, run by uh, Rob Sula and Steve Nicholas. They said, look, we've got a, a site out there. Because I was getting tips from multiple people about multiple sites. He said, there's a site out there that, that looks like it's a pond. Looks like we've got fish from multiple different seasons. You were just studying a pond. So, you know, this might give you your, your option to, uh, to study, you know, higher up in the Hell Creek. And I thought, well, well, great. You know, th this is a pond. Let's check it out. I wanted to just clarify that what you're trying to do is you're trying to get closer to the impact layer where this wouldn't it be cool if we had right up to the end of the Cretaceous and right up to the beginning of the Paleocene. And this site had those things. And that's what led you there. We've got a, a relatively good record globally of what happened long term as a result of the massive impact that occurred at the end of the Cretaceous that brought the world to its knees and made 75% of species go extinct. But at a fine time scale, hours to days, uh, we really don't know what happened that well. We, we really don't know how this impacted individual animals as opposed to long-term groups of animals. And the site in North Dakota seems to give us just that glimpse. And we didn't even realize it at first. Uh, when I first set foot out there and had a look, and, and Steve and Rob brought me around, uh, I saw dozens of fossil fish all over the place. And I, I immediately, upon looking at the strata, I immediately realized this was not a pond. This was a, a one-off event. This was a single event that caused this uh, deposition. And all the fish really were like, my God, here in one handful, you've got more articulated fossil fish than in the entire Hell Creek Formation. This is flipping awesome. The preservation is really, really special. And that's before we even knew what it was associated with. Soon thereafter, we realized, oh my God, this huge accumulation of fish, trees, plants, all this other stuff in the unit is related to the very first hours right after impact. And essentially this meter and a half thick layer of uh, rock records in the geologic equivalent of high speed film, those first few, the first hour or two after impact. And that is wow. an absolute gold mine to geology and paleontology. That's what we want to see. This site represents the Tuesday, the Tuesday that the, the bolide, the meteorite hit the Yucatan Peninsula and the resulting cataclysm that happened within minutes and hours of that event. Minutes or hours is the key here. You're all familiar with Walter Alvarez, I believe. Yeah. Yes. You, yeah. we, we've heard about the, uh, the impact that caused the death of the dinosaurs. We're talking about it right now. Uh, we would not have heard about that if Walter and his father had not come up with uh, that notion back in the 80s. They're the ones that first figured this out. And Walter is, is a very valued member of my research team. He's an incredible individual. And he's the one that actually figured out and did the mathematical calculations to figure out the timestamp of this site. Because the key are the little tiny particles of debris. We call them right. ejectospherules that were blasted out of the crater at the moment of impact. They went on ballistic trajectories like bullets through the air, and they came down all over the world and here in the North Dakota site, we can basically get the size of those spherules and work out how long they took to get there from the crater. 
And when Walter did those calculations, we figured out what the timestamp was for that unit. And we're talking within the first hour or so after impact. Wow. And, and I'm looking at your diagram, the Tanisite stratigraphy and, and fossil distribution, and there's different size spherules in different layers. And does that mean each layer represents 18 minutes, one hour, two hours, 10 hours? Potentially, we could fine-tune the timing, and that's what we are in the process of doing. And there's another team that is actually independent of ours that's doing that as well uh, at the same time right now. Um, because basically, you're absolutely right. You get larger ejecta spherules at the bottom of the site and smaller ones toward the top. Think of it this way. You've got this muddy slosh of water that is constantly depositing these little layer after little layer over basically an hour time span. And while these little layers are accumulating, you've got pulses of ejecta coming out of the sky. They're getting buried there. And then more ejecta comes out, more sediment comes out, and it's a layer cake. And by looking at the size of the ejecta at each interval of that layer cake, you're able to fine tune how long after impact that occurred. When was that? Well, now we know. When you, you came upon this site, there's piles and piles and piles of fish. Uh, these are freshwater fish, apparently. It's a river, an old river system. You are amazed by the preservation because these fish are kind of in 3D. There's, you can see all the details on these fish. But were you looking for the spherules then? Was that the clue? I mean, when did it, when was your aha moment? my God, this is it. And what was that day like? Or was it a slow that, That's a great question. At first, I was just amazed by the fish because even if this right. had nothing to do with the impact story, the fish are absolutely amazing. There are new species that are represented there. They're being studied by Lance Grandy at the Field Museum. He's got a giant grant that he's using to uh, research those. And the fish alone, that preservation is unknown in the Hell Creek. Formation. Are those the freshwater ones? Or the, well, all yes, the, the, the paddlefish and the sturgeon, all the fish at the site are absolutely incredible. So we were just completely taken by those and the preservation of the plants. You know, there are, there's a type of, uh, of tree called an aracaria that existed back then, or monkey puzzle tree, uh, as we have a, a modern variety. Uh, and we have portions of these that are preserved in three dimensions at the site. All the needles are three-dimensional. It's not lying wow. flat in the sediment. Wow. So all of that was really amazing. But um, as time went on, pretty quickly actually, uh, we started noticing these ejected spherules in the sediment and they were really not what we would expect to see. And they started to look like, my gosh, this could actually be impact ejected, but let's hold off. We don't want to jump the gun on this. Right, you're excited, we started doing, you're excited, yeah. We started doing, yeah. But, but as a scientist, you can't just all of a sudden ring the bell and say, hey, I got this. We've got to actually double, triple, quadruple check what you, we've got in order to uh, document any particular aspect. So we did that. And uh, we figured out that the uh, spherules geochemically matched uh, the impact. I'm like, wow, that's, that's really special. And then it, we figured, well, let's look at the fish because, you know, uh -huh. it's kind of like a CSI investigation. Right. Because, the fish were the key. Well, if you find, for example, not to get macabre. Let's do it. If you find a, a corpse in a burnt out warehouse someplace and you want to know if that person was alive at the time of the fire or They'll not. They'll have soot in the lungs or not. You'll look in the lungs. That's right. You'll see if there's soot. And I figured, well, let's look at the fish equivalent of that. And when we looked in a large number of those fish, we actually saw ejected spherules jammed in the gills of those fish because these are animals that are 
feverishly gasping for oxygenated water. They're in this muddy slosh. They're taking an eject as it falls from the sky. It gets wet in their gills. And then the poor things get buried in the mud forever until we dig them up. So that basically froze that moment in time. And we can see that the ejecta was coming down right as these fish were getting buried. Wow. And it started to gel in our minds and come together like, my God, what, what is this scenario that we're seeing? Two other things really got us to the edge of, of, uh, of our seats. And that is, first, we started finding marine fossils at the site. This is fresh oh, water. Yeah. This is wow. Creek Formation. Yeah. And this is not a site that is related to any of the, uh, the, the marine tongues that are in the Hell Creek. And we started seeing... Now, wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. Motosaurs. When you say marine tongues, you mean the Western Interior Seaway had these tongues yes. of retreating bays, kind of, uh, all throughout the eastern? Yeah. The Hell Creek Formation represents like the last 1.3 million years of the Cretaceous. Yeah. And the Western Interior Seaway went right up the middle of the United States and basically split it into the left and right halves, Laramidia and uh, Appalachia. And basically, the Hell Creek is sort of a, a coastal area that's, that's right near the coast of the, the seaway. But throughout that 1.3 million years, the shoreline fluctuated quite a bit. You know, sea level went up and down uh, quite a right. bit. And in some of those high stand periods, there are areas of the Hell Creek formation that were normally terrestrial, that then were sort of brackish. And you get these brackish faunas there, and you get oysters and things like that. Right, there are right. two ammonites known from the Hell Creek. Neither have shell on them. And then you get some uh, some marine influx. Um, there are two main marine tongues in the Hug Creek, the Cantipeda and the Brian. And uh, the site doesn't have anything to do with either of those tongues, and the fossils are totally different. So we're like, okay, we've got marine fossils at the site. They don't match the, the marine tongues. Uh, they're not associated with that. We've oh. got shark teeth here. We've got ammonites. <laughs> uh, we've got ammonite fragments. And this is just not... This is not typical for the Hell Creek. This is an immediate warning belt to us. Microscopically, we looked at the sediments there. And the two things we noticed, one is that the pollen, the terrestrial pollen that was there, matched the uppermost Hell Creek formation. So that basically the pollen gave us a time stamp of where we were in time at the site. That pollen told us we're in the uppermost Hell Creek formation. On land. On land. And there was something else mixed in too. We had marine dinoflagellates microorganisms uh -huh. mixed in with that pollen and in those we had markers for the latest mistricted in there too so that nailed our sight as well wow and then we were freaking out we we're like oh my god we've really got to be very very careful here and you had basically planktonic material. You even had some mosasaur bits or maybe an entire That's mosasaur? Right. We, we, we didn't have an entire mosasaur. We, we have portions uh, that are related to mosasaurs. Uh, that's all I can say right now. Oh, uh, I see. There are uh -huh. some things that are still under study. Uh. But uh, we, have, we like to say we have representatives of mosasaurs, several different <laughs> species of marine sharks, and uh, marine bony fish, uh, examples of them as well, mixed in with the freshwater stuff. Oh, really? Wow. So you put that together with your sediments. The sediments have flow structures that show that the flow was going westward. So basically, it shows that your water started from the direction of the Western Interior Seaway and was flowing westward up, up this uh, river embankment because the site 
the setting of this site is essentially on the sandbar of a Paleo River that normally flowed east into the seaway. And here it's flowing west. It's basically jamming right back wow. up and going backwards because of this massive surge of water. So it's pretty much this, a massive sloshing um, of, a of a seish. How do you pronounce seish? That? I say seish. How about you, Robert? Talk to Seisha? 10 different people and you'll hear 10 different pronunciations yeah. of that yeah. word. We usually call it seish. Okay. But seish. It's a seish is a tsunami-like wave. Uh, and at this particular site, we see bi-directional flow. That's where you basically have flow in one direction and then the exact opposite direction, large scale. And we essentially see every diagnostic sedimentological feature of a tsunami, which would also match a seish. So we are essentially seeing something that does not match uh, the, uh, the uh, other typical depositional uh, schemes that you would see out there. You don't see something that would match a storm deposit. You don't see something that would match a typical river deposit. We actually went to great lengths in our first paper to diagnose that and to see, well, could this be a river flood or, or could this be right. uh, a, a weird storm or something? And none of the diagnostic features for them exist. So that was the most logical thing. How do you know it's not just a flood? It was just some sort of tsunami well, event. You, but... Didn't you document um, like fish impaled on another fish and Fish being oh, yeah. impaled by trees and there's a turtle through with a limb uh, like oh a that's tree right what was it. that a, a what a turtle <laughs> a turtle impaled think on about, a tree right think about one of the most turbulent flows you can imagine and, and then just picture this this turbulent wave of roiling water that has trees and other objects that could definitely hurt you mixed in. And that's all roiling and going right up this river valley. It's like a wall of death headed your way. Well, if you and watch the videos, if you watch the videos from the Japan tsunami, you can see masses of debris uh, entering those cities. And Absolutely. It, it is... Um, so, so this this debris sloshed from inside the western inside interior seaway and up into this river system, and then kind of sloshed of back, water, back and forth. By the time the wave of water reached the Tanis site, it was roughly ten and a half meters in height minimum. That's so that's feet. a pretty pretty tall. That's a pretty pretty tall wave. Wow! And to have a wave, a high velocity, high, highly turbulent wave full of debris coming up there. That's obviously not a good day for anything in its path. And a lot of things were in its path. You just mentioned a turtle. Yes, there's a turtle from the site that we just reported at the GSA conference. We're in the process of analyzing that at the, uh, the synchrotron facility, the particle accelerator uh, in UK. We're about to, to publish on that uh, somewhat soon. There are fish that were impaled by other fish because some of those paddlefish have very, very long <laughs> rostra. Basically, they wow. look like uh, the, the nose looks like a swordfish going right, right through other fish like a safety pin. Really? Some are wrapped around oh. tree logs, ripped open. This was a very, very bad event for anything that was in it. Very good for us because you had rapid deposition of fine grain sediment, which is the key recipe for good preservation in the fossil record. So for us, that's gold. What I was wondering, just to, back to the piles of fish. And uh, so this is, I'm imagining this wave coming up this river, but it's coming from basically the Western Interior Seaway. It's bringing all of these fish up, every single one of them just sloshing them into the foliage along the riverbanks. And in that, there are paddlefish. 
There are bow fins. There are, are there gars in there too? I'm wondering, is there a gar or, or a bow fin in there? There are gar, there are bow fin. Uh, the proportions of the different fish are, are variable, and that's one thing yeah. that we're working on, but they do have representatives there, absolutely. Uh, we found representatives of uh, quite a few different types of fish. There's not just one type of sturgeon. There's not just one type right. of paddlefish. It's such a, a rich environment that we had no idea existed back then. This is giving us a, an image of a, a vibrant landscape, vibrant biomes there right before the asteroid hit. And it's giving us a view of those animals we never would have seen before because they usually don't get preserved. That is incredible. Well, we'll I have just, a question we'll just, about the tectites of the spheroids. Just yeah. one, more th one more thing. Ray is a fish guy. He has to talk about fish. You, I'm you are sorry. Fish. I'm going to hang in there. I'm so glad that you work with Lance Grandy at the uh, Field Museum. But the key to the whole thing, too, especially in, in extrapolating out, you know, uh, the springtime uh, uh, research that's come out now that uh, Melanie During has been working on, is that these, I always talk about these ancient fish, we actually have paddlefish, and this is key, David, I think that the paddlefish and uh, the sturgeon are ancient, and we can basically look at living paddlefish and surmise that they were not, they, they were up in the rivers, the sturgeon were anadromous. But is that Wait, key that, that means, we can compare them to, to they living go to animals? Saltwater and freshwater, right? And, right. And the sturgeon were doing that, but the paddlefish were there in the but river. But what's your point? What's your point about the paddlefish? Well, they is survived? That you have to look. At, you have to look at living animals, living creatures that you compare them to. Is what I'm getting at. For what? What does that have to do with, with anything? When they, when <laughs> we know them, Robert, help me out here. Yeah, I, 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 it goes both ways, actually. And this is a really interesting question. I, I didn't know you would want to get into it, but since well, you I'm do, let's go for I'm sorry, I'm going it. deep into it. Yeah. So, so the, the way we really do nerd out with this stuff is it's a two-way street. The, the modern examples of these organisms right. can give us insight about the paleo uh, organisms in some aspects, and it'll give us some uh, information about what the paleo world was like. But there's a flip side to that because the paleoorganisms can help us to learn more about the modern ones as well, in part by teaching us about uh, certain aspects of their early evolution, but also how they responded to different things. That's one reason this research is so important and why the different teams working on it right now are, are really you know, on to the, the right track because the Chichalub impact is – the most recent mass extinction of its kind in the fossil record, but, but also it is startlingly close uh, in uh, temporal scale to the one that we are probably experiencing right now. The rate of extinction that's going right now is startlingly similar to what we saw at the end of the Cretaceous. And by looking at the paleo world and how those animals responded to a global scale hazard, we can better understand how our modern biota will respond to a global scale hazard. So this absolutely relates to today and today's ecosystems. How are those animals going to cope with it? Can they cope with it? Are we able to play a role in helping them to not go extinct? The way to answer those questions is very much rooted in the paleo world. That's our only way to actually observe it. It's not a simulation. It's not a, a, a theory based on a computer simulation or something like that. It's actual observation of how these animals right. uh, were affected, and that's essential. So it's a whole world that comes crashing to an end very quickly in one day. That's absolutely right. 
Can I, um, I, w- I want to get back to that actual crash. Yeah, that's, let's hear yeah. about that, man. So I, I'm looking at your uh, Tannisite stratigraphy and fossil distribution chart, and these tektites and spherules, would they have had any temperature when they landed, or would they have been cooled off by, you know, t- traveling through the atmosphere? And, and, Great and question. The, the second part to that, I think it was kind of common knowledge if you were standing anywhere in North America, not uh, behind a hill, you would have been pretty much burned alive. So... Can you comment on, on the tektites and the heat that generated by this impact? Well, it, first of all, if you were anywhere within uh, six or 700 uh, miles of the impact site, you, you wouldn't have made it. it. You just wouldn't have. It would have been a very, very uh, rapid uh, dispatching of, of your life. But uh, anywhere in the U.S., anywhere in New- North America, actually, would have been a very bad day for you, and, and there would have been a lot of death within that first day. In terms of the uh, incoming ejecta, you've got millions of these little tiny spheres of glass coming back through the atmosphere. And the latest research tells us that most probably the atmospheric friction on those would have made them at least incandescent as they were coming in. So you would have had these little glowing spherules streaking across the sky like, like tracer rounds on a war zone. These would have been coming down, hitting the ground, and doing two things. They would have heated the atmosphere, and they would have uh, potentially started wildfires as well. Uh, and, and anything they pelted would not have been too happy. I don't think that the spirals could have really killed anything, but it's definitely adding insult to injury. If the worst day mm-hmm. in the history of the Mesozoic uh, also is accompanied by these little glass spirals that are stinging your skin, you know, coming out of the sky. Are they found worldwide? The ejecta is found worldwide, and it, it varies in size based on distance from the crater. So our site is basically 3,000 kilometers from the crater, and the spirals range, uh, you know, from... Uh, you know, less than a millimeter to uh, up to a couple of millimeters or so uh, in diameter on average. Now, you go farther from that, you might see things that are uh, little ejecta spirals and what we call microcrystites. They're condensed in the vapor plume that are so tiny they'd fit inside of a human hair. So you wow. go farther from the impact site and they get smaller. But these are globally distributed. You have that globally distributed. KPG boundary clay layer that's enriched in iridium and shocked quartz and these little spherules, and it's around the entire world. That's part of the beauty of the impact event. You can put your finger on that and know that that is the transition between the Mesozoic and uh, the Paleogene. There you go. You have it right there. Is the iridium and the spherules two separate layers, or are they combined into one layer? North America, you've got essentially two layers there. Uh, the bottom layer has coarse ejecta. It's got your spherules. It's got stuff you can sometimes see with the naked eye. And the upper part has all your dust-sized debris, and it's coupled into one layer, and it's called the KPG boundary uh, or the boundary clay. And that represents the coarse stuff that came down rel- relatively soon after impact, within the first day or so, and the dust-sized stuff that took longer to accumulate. Okay. And... That, you know, yes, that's a moment in time. You know, you're talking about, you know, years of time for some of that dust to come out. And we're actually working on a study now with another group that is uh, estimating how long the dust came uh, out of the atmosphere, how long it took. So the iridium layers, the dust, and the spherules are pretty much the, the, the day of the event. Essentially, that's, that's more or less how it boils out. But here's the thing. What happens at this site is that lower layer that has all the spherules in it is basically expanded to become our entire sediment column because that's the column that includes wow. the spherules. 
And the site is actually capped by the dust size debris from the KPG boundary, undisturbed, pristine, with the iridium spike and everything in it, and the shocked quartz and all those other things that are diagnostic for impact. So basically, you've got a record of the first hours, which then is sealed in time by this beautiful uh, drape of KPG fine dust that uh, that shows you that 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 was after the impact. I want to ask you this. Back in 2000, Kirk Johnson and I were wandering through the Hell Creek Formation. We were working on a cruise in the Fossil Freeway book, and he found the KT layer that day. That it was my first time walking around there. But uh, we also had that analyzed. He took that and analyzed it. And there were the, the sphere rules were in that section that Kirk and I found that day. And that was, I guess, the first time they were found in North Dakota. But I was talking to you the other day, and he said that uh, the spherules that were in that uh, example that we found were clay. Actually, they were perfectly round, but uh, they were actually had uh, were clay. And at your site, are they clay or are they glass? Actually, they're glass. both. You guys really are nerds. I'm so glad you're getting into this stuff. Usually, I'm going when way people talk this, to me about know? this, they don't they don't they don't go into these details. I love this. So, yes, <laughs> absolutely right. A very nasty thing happens in the geologic record to glass, um, and it's very unfortunate. So, so glass starts off beautiful, pristine, everything else, but when it encounters water through geologic processes, that clay will then turn, or the glass will turn to clay. So, essentially, huh. I mean, you could think of it as fossil glass, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes. But that glass will turn to clay. It'll look like the original object. You can still you could crush it between your fingers. It is unstable clay, but over time, uh, usually what will happen is uh, the glass will turn to pelagonite, and that'll alter to smectite and other things, different types of clay. But uh, sometimes you will get uh, an incomplete transition. So you'll have a clay spiral that's got a little bit, a little shard of original glass in that. And before Tanis, there were only a few sites in the world that had that. You had uh, there was a site in Mexico. You had uh, a site in uh, in Haiti. You had Colombia, a couple others, and in a couple of the spherules, a handful of the ones at Tanis, and with bulk sediment analysis, we're talking like maybe a ton of sediment to sieve through. You might get a few fragments. We actually found the first unaltered Chichilub impact glass wow. from okay. the United States, and that glass was actually really important because the clay of the altered spherules will have some elements that represent the original glass, but other stuff will be totally out of whack. So comparing one site to another will give you totally different readings geochemically. Is that because the clay at your site would have minerals leached from that location rather than purity from the event? There are some things that you call mobile elements, and when they're in the ground, they're always going to react with whatever is in the substrate, and they're going to come and go as they please, and some elements are not so mobile. And usually with the clay spherules, you're looking at the non-mobile elements to compare them between sites. But the glass that we've got that's unaltered gives us a faithful geochemical fingerprint of the impact, and we were able to use that to link the glass with uh, the different sites that are bona fide Chichilub impact sites around the world, including Haiti and Colombia and, and Mexico and others. Wow. So that gives you a fingerprint. You get a unique mixture because those spherules are mostly melted target rock, but they have a little bit of a residue of the impactor as well. And 
those Wait, so you're saying mixtures, you're saying it's their mixture of the actual asteroid and the limestone seafloor that the asteroid hit? The limestone and and also the crystalline basement rock beneath it. Yeah, absolutely. And that creates a unique mixture, a unique geochemical fingerprint wow. that we can then use to tie that from any site where you've got unaltered glass from this impact. You can tie that directly to the Chichilub impact based on that. We also doubled up on that. And we performed radiometric dating. Uh, uh, my esteemed colleague, Claudia Kuiper, over in Europe, performed uh, radiometric dating on the glass from the site. And the radiometric date matches the date of the Chichilub impact from elsewhere. So we have those reinforcing lines of evidence that tie us in. Well, that makes it, that's like, that's, that's it. It's a smoking gun. It's a smoking gun. Jim, let me just ask you this, Robert. Do you have any doubt at all? I mean, do you wake up at night going, Maybe this isn't that site, or I mean, are you absolutely certain? Or it's a massive This is flood. the day. Well, we we expended all of those doubtful moments over the uh, what was it, five to seven years, whatever it was, before we put our first paper out. So no, those doubts don't exist. We know that this site uh, is related to the Chichilub impact event. Now it's finding out how it's related. Uh, originally, we thought, wow, we've got this wave that came from the, the seaway. It, it must have been a tsunami. We know tsunami were formed by the impact. But we then had to revise that because the timing didn't match a tsunami. Right. The timing matched the arrival of seismic waves. And when uh, my colleague Mark Richards was getting into the nitty-gritty of those equations, uh, we figured out that, my gosh, the timing of the site that is indicated by the arrival of the ejected spherules matches the arrival of seismic waves. And uh, most probably, it's those seismic waves that triggered the actual uh, sloshing of the water. Is that an earthquake? Yeah, they would have been earthquakes. Yes, so they, yes. they would have been 11 on the Richter scale. Yes, it was massive. And different hypotheses based on the formation of the site and, and different things that happened uh, are going to evolve over time. But was the site associated with the KPG impact? Was it associated with that particular event? Is it there in time? Yes, it is. And we've, we've redundantly demonstrated that. Fossil plants at the site link this with the latest Cretaceous. The pollen at the site links it with the latest Cretaceous. Uh, you, know, you name it, all these different features are linking it with the Chichilub uh, impact event. And that's why now is when all of the work really begins. I want to get back to the 3D preservation. So if this was a giant sloshing. Uh, Seish. Oh, uh, yeah, giant Seish slosh. Seish it once, Seish it twice. So would, you would have found fish upside down? You would have found everything in every which way? Or did everything have a chance to settle based on their gravitational orientation? Well, this was essentially, in many ways, a, a, a train wreck, a paleo train wreck that was recorded by the geologic record. The fortunate part about it is sedimentation by tsunami and seiches and so forth, essentially you get a rapid drop of sediment out of suspension. And that drop of sediment also includes the drop of uh, anything it's carrying out of suspension. That's organic debris, animals, plants, whatever. So these things, the fish and plants and everything are chaotically oriented in many cases. They're not just flat along the bedding plane. They'll stick at an angle. They'll cross-cut the entire deposit. That's wow. one indication that this was a, 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 Violent a event. rapid event, one event. 
this was not like a long-term lake. When you've got a soft body of an organism that cross-cuts the whole deposit at an angle, you know that all those layers rapidly deposited and didn't take weeks to years, you know, yeah. otherwise it would have decayed. But um, you get a very, very high percentage of the specimens aligned by flow. And they will indicate, in addition to the flow structures and the sediments, they'll indicate what direction your water was flowing. So you've got masses of fish that are oriented a certain direction that show you an inland flow of water. That's during your pulse phase, where all the water was flowing backwards up okay. the river, westward. Like and then when you look higher up in the sediment column, all the fish are facing the opposite direction. <laughs> and the flow structures of the sediment are facing wow, the opposite really? direction, now where you get the outflow back to the western interior seaway. So you actually have preserved in the sediments and the fish the flow direction of the water inland and then outward again. So there's wow. two main pulses of this. That, that wow. paints quite a picture for me. I can see this little highway of fish going in and then they're preserved going out the other way. That's pretty mind blowing. But hey, getting away from fish for just one minute, you know, I love my paddle fish and sturgeons, but you know, the big smoking gun or whatever that everybody is looking for is that uh, you have a dinosaur or two and there you've, there's been hints that you have dinosaur feathers there's bones of dinosaurs. No, he's of found dinosaur. Well, you found feathers. Well, they're feathers, but they this hasn't been published yet. So there's a lot well, of well, well, it sort of has. I mean, we we've recently reported the feathers and some of the other material at the GSA conference in uh, in Portland back in October. Oh, you did? And and okay. yeah, but the actual uh, the 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 at length papers are uh, still forthcoming. They're being worked on, but but those discoveries were reported there, and the feathers are are gorgeous. Um, they really? are. Uh, beautifully, uh, oh, man. Th th basically, you get this 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 shocking, very very dark color of the 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 veins uh, and the uh, the rachis and the barbs of the feather against the light gray matrix. And there's a little bit of three dimensionality to the the rachis itself. Uh, that's the central essentially pen of the feather. And uh, these are large feathers. Uh, when you talk Have about you the rachis, have you identified any melanosomes for color? I can't comment on that at this point. Uh, <laughs> so, how do you but, know but, it's not but, a big old? Uh, how do you know it's not a big old eagle in uh, has an ostrich? That's a great question. So, so when you're looking at the feather, the rachis is large. We're talking at the diameter of a chopstick. Okay, that's how big the rachis is. Right. So we're talking about feathers that are basically the size of ostrich feathers, and. When we're looking at this, first, we want to be, you know, very uh, reserved and conservative about it. We, we want to make sure that we're not overblowing whatever we're looking at, but we still want to make sure it fits the evidence. And when we look at the, the data here, okay, so we've got these large feathers. So they could either be from a dinosaur, which we know theropod dinosaurs had feathers, or it could be from a very, very large bird. Okay, that's both of those options are great uh, because so far there's no bird large enough that's known from the Hell Creek Formation that could have possessed feathers of that size. I see, so that means okay. either we have a new type of very large bird in the Hell Creek, or it's from a dinosaur. Either oh, option shoot. is really, really cool. Yeah. There's another uh, point of evidence pointing toward dinosaurs, though. When we're looking at the structure of these feathers, they're primitive. You don't have barbules and hooklets on the feathers. So these are what we call open-veined pinaceous feathers, and they're incredibly primitive in the stages of feather evolution. So these feathers 
wow. also are incompatible with how advanced the birds would have been at that point in time. They're most likely dinosaur feathers because wow. of those two facts. That's so cool. Would that be something like a big oviraptor or something, you know, or a, some sort of uh, Dakota raptor, perhaps? That, <laughs> I, either one would be compatible. Even the ornithomimids, uh, you, you have yeah. Anzu. Yeah, you have Anzu that uh, lived out right, there. Right. That definitely, you know, you would Chicken expect that. Hell. Uh, so there's a number of dinosaurs that could have had those feathers. Now, in terms of actual dinosaur remains there, yes. um, I can't speak about some of that either. But some oh. I can speak about. <laughs> it's a little bit of patience. I, okay. I, it doesn't. You don't need to be too patient with it, but okay. just a little bit. It, no it'll worries. be Wait. it'll be worth your while. <laughs> you know, uh, we got all these cool fish. You know, you've mentioned that there might there's an ammonite or two, but you know. People want to know about dinosaurs. We talked about the dinosaur feathers a little bit, but what do you have for dinosaurs? I thought we got to wait, but what do you got? Well, here's the thing about research. You know, if, if we're working on the paper, it hasn't been put out there in a conference, a peer-reviewed conference or, or the uh, papers. I can't talk about those juicy things just yet. Okay. So I guess in me not saying anything about that, that tells you a little something. But <laughs> what I can talk about. <laughs> what I can uh, talk about is the stuff that we did report in the first paper, which is a partial uh, triceratops at the site. I now, remember that. Now, we yeah. reported that in the first paper. We've got a, a, a selection of bones from this triceratops, and we have the first scientifically documented triceratops skin from the Hell Creek Formation that is associated with that cluster of bones. And it is beautiful. It is uh, triceratops skin that is almost identical to ceratopsian skin from the Lance Formation. And Wait, this is at the Tana site? This is yeah. at the Tana site in the Whoa. sewage deposit. Whoa. And we presented this at the GSA conference as well. Wow. Wow. The skin actually bears uh, a dark staining, which is consistent with uh, the uh, residual organic materials that have been found in uh, other fossils and, and documented in other fossils in, in similar circumstances. So wow. this is very juicy for us to, to go into uh, for future studies. But what it tells us right now is we have this cluster of disarticulated bones. We have these patches of beautiful ceratopsian skin at the site. and what does that tell us about this particular animal? Well, first, the animal most likely, almost certainly did not die in the surge. Sadly enough, it died before the surge because it had time to decay and partially disarticulate. But the environment back then, you know, you've got to consider what was it like? We had a subtropical to tropical uh, setting. And you are not going to have soft tissue like that persist for very long in that type of environment. It's oh. going to decay, and you're not going to get patches of skin. So if you look at the taphonomy of this animal, which one grad student from Florida Atlantic University is doing right now for his master's, um, if you look at that, then you can kind of deduce, well, that dinosaur died not too long before impact. And you can think, well, Lucky for him. Based on, <laughs> ba ba based, based on the decay patterns, that animal died probably not longer than a month before the impact based on modern equivalent. Wow. So it just barely missed the one event of the Mesozoic yeah. <laughs> that everyone oh, wanted too to bad, see. Man. Can, too we, bad. can we talk about a mammal born in the Cretaceous that died in the Paleocene? Yes, because we actually reported that at the GSA conference back in 2000, whenever. 
and uh, so and we're actually you in found process a burrow of, yeah. with two of its organisms in it. One of the incredible things at the site is an infilled burrow that actually goes through the surge deposit. So obviously it was dug soon after the surge. It goes oh. through the deposit and has a chamber at the base. And inside the burrow are the bones of two mammals. And it, at, after looking at those bones, uh, it's clear that both of those mammals were approximately the same size, so they're probably the same age, and they're also the same species. So it, it's really rare to see that in and of itself. But this is so far the first burrow from the Hell Creek Formation that has any mammal bones in it, the first mammal burrow that we're aware of. So that's very cool. So what Lost you're saying, Robert, is that that happened after the event. So in the Cretaceous, that, that's when the event happened. So these are a couple surviving mammals, Mr. and Mrs. Mammal, that yes. dig through. And they're in the Paleocene. They dig down into the Cretaceous, and they have their little end of the Cretaceous How long sediment. after the surge event? Is the, do you have any type of idea? I'm so glad you asked. I was, I was going to interject that. The key here is how long after impact. And part of that key is in the sediment that fills the burrow. So the mammal dug down. They dug the burrow. They lived there for a while. And then after a period of time, uh, they died, and the burrow was filled in by other sediment. Now, at the KPG boundary, it's defined partially by the pollen change because the pollen above and below the boundary are completely different. In some areas, when you don't have the clay layer, the only way you can tell the boundary is there is based on that pollen shift. And in this burrow, when we examine the sediment that filled in the burrow, wow. we still do not see the shift to paleogene uh, pollen signatures. So it was soon enough after impact that we don't have that shift in pollen. So it was, in, in our opinion, it was very, very soon after impact. And as such, this is probably the closest thing you're going to get to evidence of the first coping mechanisms by mammals after impact. Obviously, that's important to us because we're mammals. If mammals didn't survive the impact, we wouldn't be here. So wow. examining burrows like this and what coping mechanisms they might have had, then that helps us to understand the mammal story right after the impact. So it, it carries a story forward. And yes, these mammals probably were born in the Cretaceous and probably died the Paleogene, which is a really incredible thing to think about. There are not a lot of them that did that. That's really cool. But I like the long, idea of coping. But how long after the KPG event did the pollen shift? Is that 10,000 years, 100,000 years? I mean, that's the evidence that's of the That's a very pollen. good question. Uh, that, that might be a question for Kirk Johnson because that's his specialty oh, and, and his firework. Could you get yeah, him on the phone, work Ray? On the pollen? I can. I can talk <laughs> the, to him. The, the, uh, the, the, Kirk Johnson is probably one of the, the best uh, floral people in the Hell Creek Formation. I, I really respect his work, and, and his published work from the past has helped a great deal in this study, uh, and it's helped other researchers too. So as far as the turnover and, and how quickly that occurred, I would ask him. Uh, it's not going to be overnight, no. but it's also going to be rapid enough that it's present as a knife edge in the fossil record. So yeah. it's that rapid. You actually see it as a knife edge in the outcrop. Well, that's that's what I began to understand uh, as I traveled around with Kirk, working on the Cruise the Fossil Freeway book, and uh, that you know we all think of the dinosaurs as going extinct at the very end of the Cretaceous, but uh, you know he was showing me the difference that you know the incredible diversity at the end of the Cretaceous with the plant life, and then boom, it goes from 
you know, many, many, many species down to just a couple. So you can see that it was the entire world. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, Robert, you've got, uh, you, you're there at, at the dividing line between the old world and the new world and this catastrophe that delineated that, this, this horrible thing that happened to the planet. And there's a lot of debate in the paleo nerd community, especially as to whether or not, still we think, we everybody assumes the debate is over, but there are those who still uh, insist that the, the Deccan traps, India, you know, the dinosaurs were declining at the very end of the and Cretaceous. And just, just wait, the Deccan traps is the huge volcanic event. The volcanic, yeah, stuff that's, that you know, spewed in India all the CO2 into the atmosphere, yeah. For hundreds of thousands of years, and uh, this was a dying world. What's your opinion on the diversity of life at the end of the Cretaceous? Well, first, um, you know, one site will never give you all of the answers to this, good, but good, yeah. uh, it's important to get as much information from that site and other equivalents as possible. So you could put that mosaic story together. In general, uh, there is that uh, that uh, divide among researchers. Were they already in decline? Were the ecologies, especially the dinosaur ecology, were they already in decline at that time, or were they thriving at the very end? And it seems that as more research is coming out and more uh, specimens are being studied, uh, it, it is appearing more and more that it was a thriving time of abundant life toward the end. And we're actually finding more evidence for that at Tanis. Before I go into that, though, about the Deccan traps, yes. uh, some of the, uh, the, the recent research about the Deccan traps, obviously you had a tremendous amount of volcanism going on there immediately before and immediately after the uh, the impact event. How did that affect life on Earth? Well, um, actually, some of the more recent research has indicated that, that rather than uh, be bad for it and, and sort of like a final nail in the coffin of, of why the massive extinction event happened, the Deccan traps might actually have helped it out a little bit. So if you look at work by uh, Chiarenza and others, the global warming effect that is offered by the Deccan volcanism might actually have served to shorten the period of uh, impact triggered winter after the event. So that impact winter would have been awful for life on Earth, and the Earth might actually have been warmed up quicker than it normally would have because of the volcanism. So as opposed to causing the extinction, it might actually have lessened the effects of the impact slightly, as proposed by that study. That's interesting. That's very interesting take on That's it. Pretty counterintuitive, but I could see how that. Why is it counterintuitive? A warming world creates growth and creates uh, a, a diversified ecosystem. Hmm. Yeah, but well, that was proposed by the Kierenda study, and 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 other studies have also sort of uh, uh, supported that the impact is most likely what was the the main driving factor uh, in the extinction event. But getting back to the diversity before the impact, yeah, yeah, um, th that's part of why work by our team and, and all the other teams that have come out there uh, is important because this site enables a much clearer view uh, of what life was like, at least in that area, right before impact. And it gives a window into the presence of different organisms that wouldn't be preserved otherwise. So it, it's a unique snapshot. And that snapshot is showing us that there was a lot of life. It was pretty vibrant back then, right up until impact. For example, the Tanis site, uh, the, the special goodies data-wise that are offered by the site don't end with just the package of, of the surge sediments. 
the paleo surface that that drape rests on top of is also really important because that's the last paleo surface of the Cretaceous in that area. And it essentially was locked in time by the surge deposits. So when that surge mud draped on top of the paleo ground surface, you know, whatever was there stayed there. So that's where we get our evidence of uh, invertebrate burrows of various different kinds, which we reported in our uh, first paper. And also on that dividing plane, we recently reported at the, uh, the GSA conference, the presence of multiple dinosaur footprints uh-huh. that are on the paleo ground surface. Now, oh, wow. let's look backwards. Now, when would those have occurred? It was in the, the, uh, the, the muddy embankment uh, sediment that was right on that angled uh, sandbar. So you would have had the sandbar, you would have had muddy patches there, and that would have been right by your riverside. So just like we did with the Triceratops, uh, how long before impact would those footprints have been put there? Were they right at the moment of impact? Well, no, because if you had wet mud with footprints in them and this massive surge comes in, then those footprints are going to be totally obliterated by the surge, right? But by the same token, if those footprints were put there in the mud, the mud dried out just sufficiently enough, but they were there for months and months and months, all the rainstorms that would have occurred there would have naturally eroded them away, and they wouldn't have existed then either because those footprints are filled by sediment from the surge, not any other sediment. We've documented that that sediment that fills the footprints are contiguous with the surge deposits. So they were exposed at the surface when the surge hit. So essentially, we've got a narrow window of time represented by those as well, because the footprints were impressed into the ground long enough before the surge that the ground had time to harden and dry out, but not so long that they were obliterated by rainstorms or other factors. Speaking of footprints, one thing we haven't discussed was the V-shaped craters from the spherules and the tectites. That's true. You found that within Um, the... uh, 150 centimeters. Yes, I'll get right to those. Um, The last thing I'll mention about the the footprints, though, is that the important thing about that assemblage that we first reported at at GSA back in October is that those tracks are from a variety of carnivorous dinosaurs, as well as herbivorous, the ornithischians, and from multiple different age groups. So there are actually very, very tiny trackways from hadrosaurian dinosaurs. And there are very tiny trackways from probably ceratopsians, most likely ceratopsians. And then you have the adult size tracks from those same animals. So you've got multiple age groups and multiple different types of dinosaurs uh, that were in that that general area within the the last months of the Cretaceous before impact. So that tells us there was a a very thriving dinosaur community there, most probably. Wow. Wow. This really is like, uh, you know, it's like the the planetary murder event, and this is paleo CSI at its very best. All these multiple levels that you're coming at, this is really totally fascinating, man. Now, about the micro craters, you mentioned the micro craters there, and I, I totally forgot about mentioning those. I'm glad you brought those up. Yeah, the funnel pits. The little funnel pits. So uh, I mentioned a little earlier that the, the surge uh, is comprised of, of two 
major subsurges. So you had two pulses to the, the surge event. So you had a big surge come in, it inundated the river, it backflowed, it quieted down a little bit, the surge went back out, and then a second pulse came in. And those two stacked on top of each other within, you know, tens of minutes of each other. They were like right after each other uh, in time. And at that dividing point, as one surge had gone out and the water was essentially non-existent and, and before the second surge pulse inundated with the second package of mud, we actually see rather than spherules in little lenses in the sediment, the spherules actually plunked down into the mud and caused these little cone-shaped depressions in the mud as wow. they came out of the sky because they, they, they were not slowed down by the water column because the water column was not there anymore. They were just plunking down into the mud, making these little mini craters. And then the second surge covered all that up with a, a new drape of mud. So when you look at it in cross-section in the sediment column, you see all of these little lenses of sediment, and then you see a down-warped cone where all the edges of the cone are just down-warped. And at the base, you've got one ejecta spiral. And then above that, sedimentation resumes from the second surge, and it keeps on going to the top of the column. So you actually have ejecta sediment interaction preserved in that little snapshot. So mm. why did why did the second surge obliterate this freshly not dried up little mini crater? Two two reasons. It probably did obliterate the very very uppermost portions of it. So we don't know exactly how deep they were to begin with. So it oh. probably did obliterate the, the upper portions. How but deep is the deepest that, uh, funnel pit? Oh gosh, I would hate to hazard a guess, but I would say, based on my recollection, the deepest one is on the order of uh, oh, maybe uh, three centimeters or so, uh, you know, three right. or four centimeters. Right. So w w within the uh, within the length of a wine cork, uh, you know, yeah. that, that's what you're talking. Well, the whole site and, uh, is 150 centimeters, correct? The, the, the whole site is roughly a meter and a half, so in thickness, right. more a take. And uh, and you're asking about why these weren't obliterated. Well, well, two reasons. One is the very fine-grained mud fraction at the site is interesting in that when it is hydrated, it is very gummy. It is, mm. you know, it's not like silt that will just blow away right away. It is very, very gummy, you know, almost, uh, almost a, a plastic substance when it's in that, uh, in that sort of a, a aqueous environment. The second reason is the second surge was much more gentle than the first one. Oh. The first one was absolutely turbulent. The second one has more of a fine-grained fraction. You don't get rip-up glass. And it seems that that was more of a, a subtle but massive still surge. It might have been just as deep, but it was definitely less turbulent than the first surge. So you found uh, the find of your lifetime. It came true in so many ways. This is the end of the Cretaceous, the last of the dinosaurs. The day so my, of the, the end of the The Cretaceous. very day, the very minutes after it happened. And there's been pushback from the scientific community, you know, about the way it came out into the public in the New Yorker article. And, but I'm just wondering how that's all, you contacted the author of the article somehow? How did that all roll out? Robert, and then the, the without getting into too many details uh, about that situation, because I don't know, I don't know how much I can say without offending people. But oh, again, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was no, offensive I, I, to us. Um, that entire situation was an absolute nightmare for us because uh, no one on the team had solicited 
for an article or anything. And mm. we, you know, it sort of was proposed to us because I had known Doug previously. He was a friend of mine previously. We've spoken casually about things. And uh, embarrassingly enough, and embarrassingly enough, I didn't even know that he wrote for the New Yorker. I, I honestly mm. didn't even know. And he said, hey, you know, I write for this magazine. Um, you know, <laughs> would you mind? And I thought, well, you know, I suppose, but I laid out the rules and what could and could not happen. And one of the things that was an absolute non-negotiable thing that could not happen is this doesn't come out before the study. And he waited for years and years and uh. years. And he did not betray that promise. But what apparently happened is somebody above him decided at the last minute, nope, we're going to put it out before. And they, went, to our utter horror, the entire team was horrified to find out about this. Right. They put it out like a day. It was like a day difference. That's what this all is about, a day uh, before the scientific study came out. But a day is all that oh, really? it takes sometimes. And I didn't huh. even know what was in the article because I was not able to review it before it went out. Right. So I didn't know all the things that were mentioned. If, if I did, I would have said, okay, don't mention the things that we haven't published yet. Let those wait until the papers come out. That's the normal way of things. But um, honestly speaking, that it was probably the worst thing that could have happened because it could easily be confused that the team wanted it to occur, and we absolutely did not. Hmm. And it doesn't set a good example for science because this is not how science occurs. It's not how science should occur. Uh, now, if we had presented all of that stuff, for example, at the GSA conferences or something of that nature or another international conference, that's a different story because then we would have presented it to the scientific community and it would have been fine for them to mention. Right, right. But, uh, you know, it, it was not. So that was that, that that does cause a lack of sleep. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's just, uh, you know, it was such an extraordinary sight and all these teams of people coming in and and people in podcasts and people, in, you know, all over the planet so interested in this. And uh, it's uh, it's just been fascinating. And you've got uh, you've got a lifetimes project and and many, many lifetimes to go here and studying that incredible. And not site. just me. That's, yeah, the beauty. That's one of the things I love about this is that. A site like this is kind of a, a chance to give back to the world, and that's what I like about it. It gives opportunity nice. to other scientists, it gives opportunity to other students, and it gives us all an opportunity to learn. And and in my opinion, that is as important to me as the actual data that it contains. That that is that makes it tremendously fulfilling, no matter what kind of mudslinging there is here or there about this <laughs> wow. or that. That is the thing that really sticks with me, and I love about it. Amen. Do you think there are other sites like this in the world? There are other moments frozen in time at that very that Well, you know, I moment. was thinking, Ray, 1,900 miles or uh, 3,000 kilometers south of the Yucatan, somewhere in South America, you know, there's, there's definitely uh, concentric rings of damage and debris uh, from this site, right? Although the uh, bolide did, yeah. no, it did hit at an oblique angle with the majority of the ejecta uh, aiming toward North America rather than the other way around. Is that correct, Robert? Uh, the, 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 the current, well, the there current are opposing hypothesis. views about the angle. Yeah. There are opposing views about the angle, but apparently it was, uh, it was a, a somewhat um, you know, 30 to 45 angle. degree angle probably. Yeah. Yeah, it was an oblique angle uh, headed toward the uh, north-ish. Yeah. But yeah. Um, 
what you're saying is is true. There should be other sites like this. The fossil record is fickle. It's very, very difficult to put your finger on the right depositional environment at the right moment in time. But the uh, seismic waves generated by the impact, if they are in fact what triggered the surge, which we feel is well supported, and, and Mark Richard did the calculations. Uh, so when Mark Richards did that, uh, he, he basically outlined a, a very plausible scenario. But what uh, that also did is it showed us that the seismic waves were sufficient to cause a surge like that in the right-sized bodies of water almost anywhere in the world. So if you located a fossil site that wasn't even next to a, a shoreline, but it was next to a large enough body of water right. that the seismic waves could have initiated a seiche, you could get a very similar deposit there too. Without getting into um, uh, territory of other researchers who I know are studying this right now, and I want to say it so badly, there <laughs> is a high likelihood that there are other sites out there that are either newly discovered or old sites that were previously interpreted as from a tsunami that uh -huh. have a link to this depositional uh -huh. mechanism can add to the story. So there's a very good possibility. Ah, I like the hint. Thank you for that. So maybe it's likely. We'll see. Let's see. I respect that answer, man. It's like it's it's like Patrick Stewart. Was that my voice in the Doctor Strange trailer? I don't know who's Doctor Strange. <laughs> I love that you uh, you you're the one that dubbed it the Tannis site, Robert. Are you the the guy? I am. I, I I'm the guy, for better or worse. Da, my name da, is da, da, yes. da, da, da. Nope, nope, nope. Not at all. Not at all. What, it's actually the, not anything to do with the movie. It? Really? Well, I, I'm, okay. I'm a sentimental fellow, right? I'm a All sentimental right. fellow, and, and, and when I think about the site, my mind actually went to the archaeological site of Tanis in Egypt. And All without right. getting into details, that archaeological site was uh, where a very important artifact was discovered that combined with the knowledge from the Rosetta Stone enabled the complete deciphering of the hieroglyphic language. And without that, it would only have been partially deciphered with the Rosetta Stone. So it was a, a, oh. a key to deciphering the language. And I thought, you know, when all these different types of data started flowing in about the site, I thought, you know, this could potentially provide a similar key to understanding aspects of the paleo world. And, you know, I, I, as a sort of a, a cool homage to the uh, Egyptian discovery, I named it Tanis because I thought, hey, wow. this could well, be a, a cool know. thing in itself. Yeah, it's yeah. always associated with Indiana Jones, and you know, oh, cool. but uh, that's cool. that's cool. I like, I, yeah, I like the reality. Uh, of yeah, that. yeah. You're an archaeo yeah, nerd too. You are also an archaeological <laughs> nerd. But let me, me ask you this question. So we asked this of all our guests, but maybe you have a surprise answer. I don't know. If you could time travel, you could only go back in time to some like the amazing paleo period. What time period would that be, and what would you want to <laughs> see? And I'm hoping you're gonna give us maybe a quick what what it looked like. Uh, so where would you want? When would you want to go back to, Robert? Oh my goodness! Now that's really putting me on the spot. That is really honestly. That's that's really pushing the limits there. Uh, <laughs> I don't have you a don't favorite color. Back. I don't have a favorite uh -huh. dinosaur. And uh, for that reason, it's a very difficult answer to give you. Which time Come period on. would it be? Because I, I would be, I would be forgetting about so many different time periods. But there's got to be uh, one thing you want to see. You want to stand. You next don't want to see that wave coming up the river. The wave would be incredible. What I really would love to see. My second choice would be uh, uh, okay. this other one, the Hell Creek. Yes, obviously, All I would right. absolutely love to go back to that moment in time 
and for whatever moments, tiny moments I'd survive, uh, <laughs> see those glowing ejecta spirals coming out of the sky, and uh, you know, I could I could actually smell the dust coming out of the air and see the wave coming from a distance with all of the uh, the roiling uh, mud and water and trees and everything it was carrying with it. I would absolutely love to see what the evidence in the rocks uh, has been telling us. That would be my number one choice. Number okay. two, I would yeah. I would absolutely love to see the Cambrian explosion. I would ah. love to see a snapshot representative of there the Cambrian you explosion. You're not the first. You get so many. The, the experimental forms of life that you had back then that, that led to what we have now and to many dead ends. Just that explosion of innovation is fascinating. And it helps us in many ways to understand or project or, or estimate what life will be like on other planets. Yeah. And, and that yeah. is just an incredible testing ground for different hypotheses about life in other environments. And, and for that reason, um, you know, what, what better show of biodiversity uh, on Earth and, and diversity of, of different methods of survival than the Cambrian explosion. I mean, my yeah. goodness. All right. And instead Amen. of going there, you can read Stephen Gould's book, A Wonder Wonderful Life. Yes, and my contamination of it with my own germs and whatever would change everything, and his book would be just right. <laughs> and real quick, is there a animation or film or part of a film uh, or special effect that, that shows, in your opinion, the best representation of this asteroid impact? Is well, there any of your favorite? I've, seen, I've not I mean, seen the absolute best one yet, but I know that uh, we actually participated in the Royal Society uh, UK Summer Science Program last year. It, it was tough to get in. They only accepted like 20 out of how many thousands applied. It's, it's tough to get into. And as part of that, we had an animation of the Tannis event, which oh, some wow. of it's right, some of it's not. Uh, right. I can share that with you guys because yeah. it shows yeah, cool. the surges coming in. It shows the debris coming down. The timing is wrong, obviously, because we're not going to sit around for an hour and watch the timing in right, real time. Right. So the timing is not right. And from the distance the Tannis was from the crater, you wouldn't really be able to see the impact right, itself right. on the horizon. You might be able to see a glow, and this animation shows the impact. Right. But of any that I'm allowed to share with you right now, uh, <laughs> that, that would be the one. But, uh, right. you know, of course, the documentary is coming out. Uh, I can't say when. Robert, I'm really impressed with your attention to detail as a scientist. And, and you know, you've been described as meticulous in your work, so that's awesome because... It shows your passion and devotion to paleontology. You also finance some of your own research out of pocket, which is not the norm in your field. Now, I'm curious, can you explain why you put your own money into your work? And what advice can you give to those students just starting out who might not have the personal funds to be financially independent of their own research? That's actually a really good question. Uh, why have I done that in the past? Um, you know, it's not a rule of thumb that I do or have to self-fund any portion of this, but if it comes to be a point in time where I'm uh, between other funding sources or it would benefit the project to get an extra piece of equipment or something, I will not hesitate to draw from whatever limited personal finances I have, which I can tell you as an adjunct professor, <laughs> they are not grand, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I will not hesitate to do that because of a passion for the knowledge and a passion for the project, a passion for the science. Uh, I, I think that it should happen. Now, that's not a mandate for everybody else. There's no reason that anybody else should you know, go without just to do that. But it's a personal choice, and I'm satisfied with it because it helps to advance things forward. If there are students that want to come out 
and one of them doesn't have enough finances to do that, then uh, multiple different occasions, I've advanced that to them just so that they could take part in the whole thing. Why should they have to wow. sit out the entire summer and not do it just because of something silly like that? And I would do it again. So that's why I do it. It's a passion for the well, people involved admirable. and the passion for the science. <laughs> but the um, now, as far as the recommendations for other students, thankfully, we're into a, a very new age of science. And that is refreshing because there are new opportunities cropping up all the time uh, for students and growing researchers. And what I recommend is keep your eye out for all of those. Uh, there are different programs, there are different grants and uh, at the national uh, level, at the university level, and uh, they are more numerous than they used to be, but also link up with the, the researchers because when you basically a approach somebody in your field of interest and they take you under their wing as, a, as a, uh, an apprentice or a student or whatever, they'll be able to look out for you as well. So that's it, you know, get plugged into the, the science and that scientific arena is increasingly more and more becoming a very welcoming environment. And I'm really glad to see that. Hey, Robert, thank you so much. What a mind-blowing yeah. discussion we've had oh, today. Really goodness. appreciate it. And I was just nervous, all the stuff, oh my gosh. So thank you for hanging out with us, yeah. uh, Dave, and I truly appreciate it. Really appreciate it, Robert. Thank you so much. I thank you tremendously. It is an honor to spend time with fellow nerds in the paleo <laughs> world. I love it. Nerd out, baby. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. Bye. Bye. Take care. Have a great one. Well, that was my oh, yeah. ult ultimate. Well, you know what? what? Well, I, you know I like fossils and paleontology that show the day, the minute, the actual time, because, you know, we're stuck looking at millions of years and it's daunting billions of years. And the, the, the Cambrian was 500 million years ago. It's hard half a billion. Yeah. No, it's hard a, to fathom that, you know. And how cool is this that this is the moment, the time? I know. And I know. Um, yeah. And the fact that there's so many different everything, plants and dinosaurs and marine and and freshwater and saltwater. Oh, it's just like, it's a snapshot of the ecosystem the day the asteroid hit in a giant train wreck of a three-dimensionally preserved violent mudslide. Right. Turtles impaled on, oh on trees, fish stabbing other fish. But, but you know, I, I'm glad that I asked a couple of questions there because there's it's such an extraordinary find. And as Carl Sagan once said, with extraordinary claims, you need extraordinary evidence, yeah. right? Yeah. And I am really impressed that this guy, uh, he's, well, he just turned 40, as we heard. But, you know, he's been working on this site for almost 10 years, and he has done an incredible amount of work. And he's been bringing in all the researchers everywhere. And, you know, there's been especially in the science community, they're going to challenge you. And, you know, he's doing the right thing. I came away being very impressed with uh, his thorough knowledge on yeah. it. And, well, I read uh, his papers called know? a seismically induced onshore surge deposit at the KPG boundary, North Dakota. And this not only describes everything that happened, but they go into such detail that shows the timing of the spherules and, and how the different sizes hit at different times and the evidence of the sloshing of the water and the mud flows and the position of the biota 
that's left in there. It is it is a smoking gun of this event. I, I came away, I believe now. I, yeah, I was a me little too. skeptical. I mean, how can you do this? But they have come yeah. at it from every angle. Yeah. And I'm a believer, man. And uh, I'm glad we got the true story yeah. about uh, the naming Tannis. Yeah, yeah, it's great. He's into Egyptian stuff. Smart guy, fun stuff. Well, Ray, another fantastic episode. And uh, I think we're not releasing these every week as we did during the pandemic because we have, our, we have our distinctive lives. I'm going to be going back on tour soon, <gasps> but Paleo Nerds is not stopping. And we shall be recording episodes and editing them and playing them for you as time goes on. So uh, we're not stopping because we really like doing this. Yes, don't we? we do. And and and, I, and yeah, it's it's one of my greatest loves. Well, get to talk to all these folks, and uh, on we go, onward we go, man. Good luck down under. Yeah, mighty. Yeah. Yes, maybe uh, we'll do one from down under. Oh, do I get to come? No. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I'll record one from down under. Yeah. On your own, Dave, without yeah. me to be your foil. Well, no, Ray. We do it. Th- we do it on Zoom. You're, you're going to be in it. Oh. What's the difference whether I'm here or in Australia? As long as I have a good internet connection. <laughs> well, I guess, but I have done a couple of episodes without you in yeah. the room, Dave. Well, so you, I won't you, do that to you, Ray. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, okay, I okay. see. What you're, you're throwing shade on me. All right, yeah. I got that. All right, well, All right. hey, uh, goodbye from Ojai, California, where it's uh, March 1st. It's springtime. I don't know when this will be airing, but it is 85 degrees now, so there went our winter. Mm, it's a beautiful day here in K-Town by the sea, and I'm going to go for a stroll after I eat some lunch. Say hello to the uh, crows and ravens for me. I shall, sir, and uh, onward. See you, dude. See ya! I'm a paleo nerd. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Paleo Nerds.